I haven't had a chance to sing that song in years. It's a beautiful song. I love this cross here. This, this, uh, I know, I know, logistically, it's difficult probably to see the lyrics. I would imagine if you're back in that corner, but I wish that could stay all year. I absolutely love, I love seeing it. There's a saying. I don't know who said it, that uh, gave me the title for this sermon. And it says, the Bible is the only book that reads me. And I suppose that's, that's accurate. In fact, I think that saying speaks to what may be the primary way in which the Word of God works in human hearts, period. What does, if that's true, what does the Bible read when it opens me up? Does the Bible give us any clue as to what we could say is true of every person indiscriminately if we're asking the question, what does the Bible read when it opens me up? It reads on every single page of me, my default position with which I was born that I not only must earn God's approval through my good works, but that I can earn God's approval through my good works. Every human being got that from the Garden of Eden. Every human being not only lives to earn the approval of someone, even if that someone is themselves, but lives to prove that we can do that. But the real fight... The real fight to justify our existence and to earn our reward is a fight with none other than God Himself. And the Word of God dissects my default position like a hawk with the Gospel, the central message of all Scripture. You've never, I've never, you've never, we've never met a Christian who is not trying to earn God's approval. Somewhere deep down inside of every Christian in this room this morning is this little voice that never goes silent, questioning us, probing us. Do you really have God's approval? Is the cross really enough? Have you done enough? Are you really saved? That's also why we constantly evaluate each other, asking the same questions about each other. Is he committed enough? Is she really saved? The Word of God was written to lay us open until it finds the source of that voice, beloved, and cuts its head off. The Word of God is always reading us. Always. I'm preaching from Hebrews 4 this morning, but the larger purpose today is to let this text introduce our series through the book of Galatians that starts next week because the Word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword is a person named Jesus Christ who comes to read us with the Gospel. The one true Gospel. There is only one. That's the context of this very well-known text in Hebrew. So, the book of Galatians will lay wide open every single person in this room. 
it will read you literally like a book. It will find the source of every single solitary molecule of your doubt and your self-righteousness and your unbelief and drive it, drive itself through those things like a sword through flesh. But then it will heal. And in the scars, beloved, we will find our freedom. I'll have more to say on that beginning next week. This morning, Hebrews 4 stands in front of us. The author of Hebrews wrote this word of exhortation as he calls the whole letter in 1322 to stir up the shrinking faith of this group of believers to pull their eyes off of themselves, off of their works, off of their circumstances, to behold the crucified, risen, and reigning Christ as their only source of hope and eternal life. He wrote this letter overall to say one main thing, and that's that Jesus Christ is better than everything else. He is superior over everything. He is supreme over everything. And in chapter 4, he's recounting the failure of the wilderness generation under Moses after the Exodus to enter the promised land, which leads him to these verses. So if you're able... Would you stand with me as we read from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 of God's Word. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Our Father, we do trust in Your Word. We stand or fall on Jesus Christ. So, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, this morning would you enable us to hear him speaking to us in this text. Would the word do what you say it does to every single one of us? And may we believe the things we are meant to believe. God, please hold me up. Please speak through me so that you are heard instead of me. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ for your glory, for your people, and for Moundsville. Amen. You may be seated. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That verse begs a few questions, doesn't it? First of all, what rest should we be striving to enter? According to 3.18 and following, it is the rest provided for us by God was foreshadowed by the promise of rest for the Israelites when they were traveling in the wilderness. This is the true and final rest from wandering and working for us today who will believe the word of the Lord that is given to us in the gospel. It's ours for the taking, this rest. 
This is what the author is spurring them on to in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. God has promised rest to those who will do what He says to do. The wilderness generation did not do what He said to do. They failed to enter their rest. Which brings us the next question that's begged by this text. What sort of disobedience was it that they fell by? What precisely was the disobedience that disqualified them from being able to enter the promised land. If you would, take your eyes up to verse 2 of chapter 4. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. This particular sort of disobedience that kept them from being able to enter the promised land was precisely, exclusively, unbelief. They did not unite themselves to that promise of rest with faith. They did not believe the good news that they heard. That is the specific sort of disobedience we are being warned not to fall by. Not believing the good news we heard. They heard it, trust me, believe my word, and you'll enter the rest, you'll enter the promised land. And they said in so many different ways, yet we just don't believe that. All their disobedience in the wilderness is categorized under one banner here. Unbelief. So the author of Hebrews uses that to spur on these believers in verse 11 not to be like them and instead strive to enter God's rest. Which is ultimately in 4.10 a final resting from one's own works. But it's kind of strange. If, If resting is a rest from one's works then why does it take striving to enter it? Right? I, 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 we need to know that because striving to enter the rest is the way I keep from falling by the same sort of disobedience that cost them entrance into the promised land. That's why these words matter. If the disobedience that kept them out was unbelief, then the obedience that gets us in is none other than belief. Again, What didn't they believe? God's Word. His message to them. His promise of rest. Striving to enter His rest is a fight to believe the Gospel. That's what we're learning in Hebrews 4. Striving to enter the rest is a fight to believe the Gospel. The message of promise that we have heard from God's own mouth. And that message, that word, has now been personified, beloved. For in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. Chapter 1, verse 2 of Hebrews. The fight is to believe. The fight is to just believe. Striving is necessary then. That's talked about as striving Because everything in us tells us you have to work to enter the rest. Believing to enter the rest is not enough. You have to work to enter the rest. That's why it's striving. That's where it comes from. The message is not hard to believe. We don't want to believe it. Thus, striving. Believing the gospel is literally, literally, the most counter intuitive thing in all creation. Period. Period. 
It's so counterintuitive that you have to strive just to believe it. Belief does not come naturally. It is not what we want to do. It's not what we think will get us home. We think, yes, I'm saved by grace, but really, it's work that gets you home. Believe the promise that to believe is to be saved. Period. No, no, no. I have to earn it. I have to prove it. And from that, again, comes this unending conflict between our flesh and our new natures that means we will have to strive to enter that rest. Not because the message is insufficient to save, but because we are insufficient to believe it. That's the whole thrust of Hebrews, for what it's worth. That's the whole thrust of this letter. The benefit of having faith in the message in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, the benefit of that is nothing less than entering the rest. Listen to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Listen to these words. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's no place for novelty. None. No place for innovation. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, past tense, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What other hope is there if the only thing to do is to believe? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard this great salvation, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will when it first began, right? The basis of the whole letter, what frames the whole letter and hangs like a shadow over everything in it is pay much closer attention to the message you have already heard. Right? The message that was proclaimed at first by the Lord Himself and then by His apostles. The gospel. This great salvation. Pay closer attention to what you already know. Give more attention, closer attention to what you already know. You see, it's repeat, 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 repeat. And, and you, 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 you know we don't get how beautiful and simple it really is because we get tired of hearing the same thing over and over again. When we gather in this place, what else is there to talk about? I mean, pay much closer attention to it. That's a command. In the Bible, don't neglect your need, your desperate need to hear the gospel you already know as much as possible. You don't move away from it. We don't graduate from it. We don't need something added to it in order to get all the way home. Like, this is the Bible talking. Listen more closely to it. You don't ever think when the cross comes up, which it better come up every Sunday from this pulpit, or you should kick me to the curb. Right? We, we don't think, ah, yeah, I, I yep, mm-hmm, yeah. Jesus is all I need. That's, that's great. Yeah, I've heard that last Sunday. I heard it Wednesday night. I, no. 
You, you, hear, you hear the cross come up and you go, all right, give it to me. Give it to me. More, more, more. For, you see that word. You see that word in verse 12 of chapter 4. For, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The flow of thought here is, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience because the Word of God, the message that has now come to us, this Word of great salvation is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you hear the argument the author is making? You had better believe this word. Because this word is alive. It's active. It's at work right now. The, 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 ver- the verse is what it says. Right? This, every time you read this, it's alive. It's doing something. It's not outside of me for me to agree with mentally. It is at work in me and outside of me to do something to me. To cause something to happen that I can't do on myself. You better believe the Word because the Word is alive. It's at work right now. It's always at work. Always, and it works like a sword. And again, we, we, I think I mentioned this before, I'm sure I have, but I know we look at this verse sometimes and we think, yes, yes, the Bible does surgery. Again, you don't do surgery with swords. That if, if, if you go in to a pre-op room and a guy walks in with a giant broadsword, you are going to die. You're going to die. He's going to kill you, I promise. That, that's, that's what's going to happen. No, it, it, it works like a, a sword that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces. It pierces until it divides soul from spirit. Right? Like a, like a blade divides muscle from organs and joints from bones. That's the metaphor. That's what swords do. Until it discerns the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Nothing can do that but the Word. It cuts until it gets to who we really are. And until it exposes what it is that you and I really believe. And in verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. Do you see that? Right? What's the antecedent of the pronoun his? It's the word. The word is a person in verse 13. God is speaking to us in His Son. In this message that is now being proclaimed to us, Jesus is this Word. And He is reading every single one of us all the time. Jesus knows precisely who we are. Jesus knows exactly what we really believe about what actually saves he knows what exactly what we believe gives us the right to rest. 
He is God's full and final word, spoken to mankind deliberately in the gospel, and through it he pierces and divides through every millimeter of our soul to see if we believe that he is really enough. We need to know that because all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. There it is again. Him to whom we must give an account This word will pardon or this word will indict. So we had better believe it. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ lays every human being absolutely bare. He he takes every single ounce of leverage we think we have away from us. This is a warning. This is a warning. If anyone anyone thinks he or she might stand before the one true and living God to give an account apart from claiming anything but the blood and righteousness of Jesus as their only covering, that one will perish forever in eternal conscious torment and utter darkness and flame. Either Jesus Christ has paid all the debt for all of your sin, past present and future. Either Jesus Christ has credited to your account all of His righteousness as your only source of goodness, or you will stand before Him like a guest at a feast with no clothes on, naked, exposed, ashamed, and responsible to account for your own record. It's terrifying. And if that happens, you're going to have to come up with enough money to pay for every single thing you've ever done wrong in thought or in deed. Oh, and also all the stuff that you should have done that you didn't do, you'll have to pay for all of it. You'll have to present some kind of document or spreadsheet of all your good deeds and hope that the God who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see, The God who is surrounded by flying angels called seraphim who are so big their voices shake the foundations of the threshold in heaven, which is not easy to do. But they're still so tiny compared to God that they have to cover their faces and their feet because the ground's too holy for even them while they boom His praises. The God who made all things with the word of His mouth The God who sustains all things by that very same word. The God who, if He were to take His sustaining hand away from the earth for a second, it would go careening into the sun and melt before it exploded. The same God who owns everything to the degree that you couldn't give Him a gift. It's already His. You'll have to hope you can bargain with Him with money and our pathetic list of good deeds that maybe our grandma would like. I'm not telling you this. God is telling you this. I'm a mouthpiece. You aren't accountable to me. I'm nothing. You're not accountable to the devil. He's like you. Guilty. This is God talking. We don't have enough money. And our best is nothing more than rags to Him. Did you hear that? Our best is nothing more than rags to Him. 
So either God provides a substitute who pleases Him on our behalf, someone holy enough that could go to Him from earth, stand before Him, come out alive, someone whose blood can wash away debt, because money won't do it, someone whose righteousness can please Him, it have to be otherworldly, ours is not good enough, and, 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 and somehow you could just throw yourself onto Him as your only Savior, before, during, and after you're saved, or you and I perish. Perish. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no other alternatives, nothing. God owns you and me. Either the sword that is God's Word will save me, or He will kill me. And beloved... This is the rationale of the author of Hebrews to professing believers. We are damned if we think the gospel is only for unbelievers. The word that saves is being spoken, is living and active all the time to everyone. Since then. Oh, beloved. <laughs> Look at how the Word works. Watch it cut. Watch it cut. And lay us open. Now watch Him heal. Watch Him heal. Since then, verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. (laughs) Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Since we have that substitute I was talking about, you see the rationale here? Believe Him. Since you have it, believe Him. You see it. You see it that this is the message to believe. This is the proclamation. This is the Word. Jesus Christ is that great High Priest. He is that great salvation. The Word that kills is the same Word that makes alive. He has passed through the heavens from earth and gone into the very presence of God as both God and human and has not been destroyed. We have a high priest in verse 14 then who is holy enough to offer up an acceptable sacrifice, was holy enough to be vindicated by God in resurrection, is holy enough to stand for us in heaven before the throne of God Himself and... and... In verse 15, we also have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a mediator standing before us, before the, before the Father, who can say, Father, I know 
Tony just fell again. But that sin is so hard to stand up to, so I I stood up to it for him. Here's my blood to pay for it. Here's my obedience to replace his disobedience. This is my younger brother, right? I love him. He believes in me. He's justified. He's yours. I bought him for you. The one human being who never sinned presented his perfection to the Father on behalf of everyone who believes because they always sin. I shared in the Wednesday night study a couple weeks ago what I hope helped explain how well Jesus can sympathize with us precisely because he never fell into sin. Is it right? It feels strange on a, at a glance, right? He doesn't know what it's like to fail. He doesn't know what it's like to disobey God. So how can he sympathize with us when we do, right? Is it just a, is it, like in other words, is it something God is saying that doesn't really have any traction because no, he can't. Right? Imagine two bridges that were built at the same time in an extremely high weight, high traffic location, right? Gas and oil trucks driving over it all the time, right? After 80 years, bridge one collapses one day as a truck drives over it. Bridge two, however, stands and still to this day has never so much as buckled or chipped. Which one of those bridges knows more about holding up under weight? The one that crumbled or the one that won't? Which one knows better how to hold up under weight? Which one of those bridges knows more about withstanding constant pressure and not giving in? This is Jesus for us. Every single inch and millimeter where you and I buckle, where you and I chip, He holds. He holds. This is our high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are. In other words, Jesus didn't succeed because Jesus got a different test. He, like, like He got an easier one. Like God said, okay, Jesus, listen. Go down there. Just don't become a serial killer and you can stand in their place. No. No. No, son, you'll feel it all. You'll feel it longer and you'll feel it worse. You'll feel exactly what they feel. And if you don't hold, it's over for them. Now you talk about pressure. You see that His perfect, redeeming, substituting work, this is the gospel, is the only basis of drawing near to the throne of God Himself. That's the only basis. 
He was without sin. He passed through the heavens. Jesus made it out. He succeeded. He obeyed. And now we have a strong and perfect plea before the throne of God above forever. Let us then, you see that? Let us then with confidence. Not because you're going to reach a place where you should feel fairly confident enough to approach the throne of God Himself. That's not the basis of our approach. When you feel like, you know, now, you know, I've done pretty well. We go by the, through that on a, on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis sometimes. Sometimes we come in, we were talking about this the other night, on Sunday mornings, sometimes you feel really good, you've had a good week, and so you sing out and you're happy and you smile because you have confidence because you've done well. Then other times you come in and you've blown it this week or you had a horrible blow-up or fight on the way to church with your family or you've just really had a horrible week at work and you, you've blown it a hundred times and, and then you can't sing and you're timid and you feel out of place and you feel unworthy. Do you know why? you know why both of those things happen? Because we don't look to Christ alone for our righteousness and confidence to draw near to the throne of God above. We look to ourselves. Right? They're the same thing. Both of them are ignoring the cross. It's not pious and religious when God has told you to draw near with confidence in the midst of your weaknesses to say, I'm not worthy enough to come today, as though that will impress Him. Oh, you're really serious. No, no, no. You're really throwing what my son did in the trash is what you're doing. Sing, sinner. Sing with me because that's what I am. He succeeded. He obeyed. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. So when you have fallen again, when your striving has failed, and you come up over the hill again, tattered and bruised, smelling like you've been sharing a trough with pigs, there will be one standing on the porch at home, again, shading his eyes, maybe looking out over the horizon for you, whether it's time 20 or time 2,000. He will run to embrace you. Not just because he's eternally sufficient and faithful, but also because he understands how hard it is to strive. And He sympathizes with you and me. Is that your Jesus? Is your Jesus sympathetic or is He a sin sheriff? It's just that He succeeded where you and I failed. And He did it for all the poor and powerless. So when you want to draw near, don't grovel. Now think about think about that. How could it be wrong to grovel when you're coming to the Lord if the Lord commanded you to come with confidence? You, you see that? We disobey. You see how hopeless we are? We disobey when we don't come with confidence. We feel so holy and self-assured when we loathe ourselves Don't we? We feel so good about our piety that's graduated so far above everyone else. They don't really feel their sin like I feel it when I mess up. 
Oh, teach us the way, Master. Teach us the way. No, 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 you come with confidence, not arrogance. Confidence. The confidence doesn't speak to your merit. The confidence speaks to the quality of he to whom you come. That's why there's confidence. Beloved, we draw near this morning to a throne of grace. To blood that speaks a better word than anything we can say, than anything the world can offer. Do you see it? Just what is it exactly to draw near with confidence? It's to believe the word that says you can. That's what it's always about. And that belief is the key to receiving mercy and finding grace to help you in time of need. Faith is not a meritorious work. Faith is the giving up of anything we think we could offer and just throwing ourselves on Him. Please catch me. That's belief. We don't have the right according to the Word. And we don't have the need according to the Word to doubt whether we will receive God's embrace if we draw near to His throne. Because we have a high priest acting for us who is so great, who covers all our sin and all our insufficiencies so perfectly that when God sees you, He sees Him. This is the Word of the Lord. And this is the only Word that can declare us righteous and clean. So I ask you this morning, do you need mercy? Do you need Grace, do you need help? Are you in need? Cry out to Jesus Christ. Just believe His Word. He will save and He will never leave you and never forsake you. He will never stop interceding and mediating and sympathizing with you. You will always have everything you need in Him alone to stand guiltless and loved before the throne of the one true and living God. Jesus is going to understand your struggle. Don't hide it from Him. He's reading you. But He's reading you with sympathy. What a Savior. What a Savior. Man, I'm, I'm done in a minute if he's not like this. I wouldn't even last 60 seconds. I don't know what I'm talking about. A minute. Doesn't mean I'm... Right, we understand, right? Doesn't mean like I'm constantly doing these horrible things. Although that's not trying to excuse anything. My point is I'm, I'm never good enough. Right? It's, it's not just that I'm a sinner. It's that I'm not good enough. And there He is to meet both of my insurmountable deficiencies in the Gospel. Entrust your very soul to the One who has already passed through the heavens. Right? To the One who made it out. God has read your book. He knows you. The Word weighs. The Word measures. And we are all found wanting. But by decree of that very same word, 
the very same God has sent His Son to stand in our place to not only forgive us, but to be for us what God demands that we simply cannot ever be. So whether you are saved or yet to be saved this morning, believe the gospel. Fight for it. Fight to let nothing sway you from grace. Believe the gospel. Believe the word of the Lord. And stay right there. Right there. He's reading you this morning. He's reading you. What do you believe? I'm going to close this in prayer. We're done. When I'm done, we'll sing. I'll be down front if any of you need to come and pray, want to come and pray. If you want to be baptized, if you've believed, if you want to join our church, now is the time to come and let us know. But the front is open. The word is truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy that we need so badly, but we have so much. God, I pray that everyone in this room would believe this word this morning and nothing else. That we, as a people in this church, for the sake of our church, for the sake of our town, would we be a people you cause to strive for believing the gospel. May that be what makes us who we are. The word that saves and the word that keeps, that is one in Christ. I ask and pray this in His name, for His sake, for our church, for our town. Amen.
to thank you all for being here this morning so much. Remember, we have service tonight at 6.30, Wednesday at 6.30. You're more than welcome to come. But may the peace that passes all understanding guard your hearts and minds in the Lord Christ Jesus. We pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you so much for this time. Father, Lord, I thank you for your word that slays 